Hey, podcast listeners, I want you to be among the first to hear about Somley, a new way to discover, shop, and interact with Texas wineries. Somley is an online marketplace where wine enthusiasts can explore wineries, join wine clubs, read reviews, and buy or give the gift of Texas wine. Similar to Etsy, Somley enables artisan wineries to sell their wine direct to consumer and cut out the middleman. Somley's marketplace will be opening in Texas early this year, very soon. To learn more, visit somley.com or follow somley.wine on Instagram. Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 37. If you don't already know Benedict Ryan, you're in for a treat today. In our interview, we talk about how Texas reminds her of her native Provence, how she strives for balance in winemaking, and her thoughts on the collaborative nature of the Texas wine industry. And as always, there's Texas wine news. We've got results from a recent wine competition, information on the growth of wineries in Gillespie County. That's where Fredericksburg is, by the way. And I'm also sharing my takeaways from the recent Texas Hill Country Winery Symposium. There's also a bit of a Texas wine mystery that I'm hoping you can help me solve. Whether you're a regular listener or listening for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. First, a quick update about the lawsuit that over 60 Texas vineyard owners have filed against Bayer Crop Science and Monsanto and BASF Corp. The grape growers have succeeded in keeping this suit in state court. The companies wanted to file the suit in federal court, but a U.S. district judge said earlier this month that the case belongs in Texas where it was filed. Adam Donnell, a partner at Schiffer Hicks Johnson, LLC, who represents the vineyards, said his clients are pleased with the ruling. He says the Texas wine industry has been treated as a cost of doing business by Bayer and BASF and has been decimated in the process. We look forward to trying our claims in Texas courts. Ernie Leffler is the president and CEO of the Fredericksburg Convention and Visitor Bureau. He was also my guest on a previous episode all about wine tourism in Fredericksburg. In a recent editorial for the Fredericksburg newspaper, Ernie mentioned that there are 13 brand new winery permits, also known as G permits, in 2021, which brings Gillespie County to 65 unique wineries permitted there. There are, of course, some wineries that have more than one G permit, but in fact, there are 65 unique wineries in Gillespie County. And that's why the Convention and Visitor Bureau calls Fredericksburg the epicenter of the Texas wine country. For a listing of the wineries in Gillespie County, go to visitfredericksburg.com slash wineries. HEB is the largest seller of wine in Texas. Well, TexFest at HEB is happening February 16th to March 8th. And now is the time to start a conversation with the HEB wine stewards in your local store. Let them know that you're interested in Texas wines, and you can also request specific wineries or types of wine that you're looking for. Then when TexFest starts on February 16th, be sure to go buy the Texas wines you've requested. You'll also get a bit of a discount. 
The way to get more Texas wine options on the shelf is for customers to request them. And if you're anywhere near Tomball, Texas, you need to stop into the Tomball HEB to see what might be the largest retail selection of Texas wines anywhere. Thanks to our dedicated podcast listener known as Johnny Wine. Okay, maybe someone can shed some light on this Texas wine mystery. I just saw a Facebook post made by Chase Jones, owner of Slate Theory Winery. And the photo is none other than John Charles Boisset. He's president of Boisset Family Estates, one of the world's leading family-owned wine companies. Boisset owns more than 26 wineries in some of the world's most famous wine regions, including his homeland of Burgundy, Beaujolais, Jura, the Rhone Valley, south of France, Sonoma, and Napa. Its California wineries include Deloche Vineyards, Raymond Vineyards, Buena Vista Winery, and JCB, which of course stands for Jean-Charles Boisset. Some call him the James Bond of wine. He's married to Gina Gallo. Yes, that Gallo. And in 2019, the Boisset Company was conservatively estimated to be worth about $450 million. A Forbes article that's a few years old included this quote about Jean Charles by Rob McMillan, founder of the Silicon Valley Bank's wine division. He described Boisset as the wine equivalent to Ringling Brothers. He's an entertainer with flair and flash. He's also a great business person, able to take a tarnished penny and shine it up. So my question is, what's John Charles doing in Texas? And what did Chase Jones mean when he captioned his photo, Big Waves for Texas Wine Coming Soon, with a big all in caps? Is Slate Theory working on some kind of partnership with JCB? Or did JCB buy land or a property in the Hill Country? I'd love to know more, so someone please fill me in if you're in the know. The San Francisco Chronicle wine competition results were just announced, and Texas wineries did quite well. There were 10 best-of-class winners, two for white wine, six for red wine, one for sangria, and one for a fortified wine. An additional 18 double gold medals were awarded to Texas wineries. Two wineries that caught my eye are Eden Hill, that had a whopping four double gold medals, and Becker, that had a best-in-class and two double golds. Check out the full list of Texas winners on Texas Wine Pod social media channels, or visit the website, winejudging.com. Dr. Russ Kane is well known for his blog, VintageTexas.com, and his book, The Wineslinger Chronicles. And he also teaches the Specialist of Texas Wine course. He was a previous guest on this podcast, too. Well, Russ just recently published an article on his blog about the advantages of Texas Roussan. He loves that it buds a little later than other popular white varieties in Texas. It's also cold-hardy and sun-loving, two traits that don't always occur in the same grape. And finally, he loves that Roussan makes excellent wine. In the article, he names six Roussans that he's tried and enjoyed from different Texas producers. They include the William Chris Roussan from La Pradera Vineyard that won the Texom Award for Best Texas White, and also a 2010 McPherson from Bingham Vineyards that Russ says shows the variety's aging potential. It's a great, thoughtful article from Russ. So check out the article and check out Texas Roussan if you haven't already. And finally, I wanted to give a report on my recent attendance at the Texas Hill Country Winery Symposium in Horseshoe Bay. This was my first Hill Country Winery Symposium, and it couldn't have gone better if you ask me. 
The best part was getting to meet some great Texas wine people, including some podcast guests, sponsors, and listeners who I'd only met online. And the seminars were great, too. I heard presentations on everything from marketing and women in Texas wine to Texas bubbles and trends in winemaking. I'll be thinking about and talking about this for a long time. I want to share with you five specific takeaways from my days at the symposium. First of all, I think that Texas wine is better for having people from various industries bringing operational and hospitality best practices to this industry. We all win when someone with a deep understanding of technology or extensive experience in delighting customers helps Texas wineries set up procedures or train staff on customer service and winery tasting rooms. And in a similar vein, it's great to hear how winemakers in other regions solve problems or approach opportunities. One of my favorite moments at the symposium was chatting with a Texas winemaker and a Finger Lakes winemaker who were comparing notes on making sparkling wine. And yeah, a lot of winemakers are coming here from California, but you can't tell me that that's always a bad thing. Next, I'm excited about the educational scene for students that are studying about Texas viticulture and enology. Several of them were awarded scholarships by the Texas Hill Country Wineries Association, and I had to talk with a few. I also got to hear from Dr. Amit Dingara, who's the new department head for the Texas A&M Department of Horticultural Sciences. He's excited about Texas wine and research that will help grape growers and winemakers. He plans to visit all the wineries in Texas, and that's no small feat. Dr. Dingra encouraged attendees to get in touch with him, and he even gave out his cell phone number. So I just texted him a link to this podcast. And in the time it took me to finish writing the script, he's texted me back, and we have plans to connect. You may never hear me say it again, but gig him. During the symposium, I did kind of a deep dive into sparkling wine, and I did a visit to Heath Sparkling Wine and also attended a seminar on Texas bubbles. It's no secret that I love bubbles, and it sounds to me like a lot of you agree. In our symposium tasting, we enjoyed the farmhouse sparkling Malvasia, made in a forced carbonation method, a high meadow pet nat that was 75% Morvedra and 25% Viognier, and then from outside of Texas, we tasted the Gruet Sauvage and a pet nat of a very obscure grape from Australia. As good as these pet nats are, and I do think that they're fun and delicious, for me, they don't replace my preference for a wine that's made in the traditional method. The problem is that Texas doesn't have the equipment necessary to do this very labor-intensive process in a large-scale way. So Texas wineries have a choice to make. Either do the riddling and bottling by hand, or send the wine out of state to have it bottled. Several Texas wineries send wine to Rack and Riddle, a facility in Sonoma where the wine is finished and bottled. McPherson Cellars sends their sparkling Chenin Blanc to Kim McPherson's brother John's winemaking facility in Southern California to do the same. At Rack and Riddle, over a million cases of traditional method sparkling wine are bottled each year, and that's how Heath Sparkling Wines makes their wine. They make about 15,000 cases of wine annually. And it's not all Texas wine, but three of the four wines that we tried there at Heath were labeled as Texas wines. So how long will it be before Texas wineries collaborate on a facility that could be used to produce traditional method sparkling wine right here in our state? I'm hoping it's soon. One of the main differences that Texas consumers would notice 
is that wines made in the traditional method should be absolutely clear since the hazy remnants of fermentation, which are the spent yeast cells, are first collected in the neck of the bottle, then quickly frozen and ejected from the bottle. And then the bottle is corked with a traditional cork. If you visit Heath Sparkling Wines, you'll get the full rundown of sparkling wine production via a neat video presentation that takes you through the whole process. The riddling, or turning the bottles at an angle to collect the spent yeast, and the disgorgement, which is the releasing of the yeast plug from the bottle, can also be done by hand. And there was some great information sharing at the symposium about how that can be accomplished. Another session I attended was a fascinating review of recent enology research by Dr. Andrea Botizatu of Texas A&M, where she's an assistant professor and extension enology specialist. Dr. B, as she's known, shared three studies that she's been working on. One was an enzyme that, when added to wine, can reduce alcohol and increase acid level and pH. Another study focused on using grape pomace, that big cake of grape skins that le- that's left over after making wine, to remediate cork taint. While each of these was super interesting and perhaps slightly over my head, I was incredibly interested in a consumer study that Dr. B recently conducted. She surveyed 1,000 Texans to find out their knowledge of and preferences around Texas wine. There's so much to address in the study, but what I found most surprising is the number of Texans who don't drink Texas wine because they don't know that Texas makes wine. I'll share more about this study when I get the slideshow that was shared at the symposium. There's a lot of work to do here, but the opportunity is huge for Texas wineries. And one final presentation that I enjoyed was about continuing education programs for winery staff. It was moderated by Donna Renee Johnson, and the panelists include Julie Culkin of Pedernales Cellars, Victoria Calais from French Connection Wines, and Anthony Harville of William Chris Vineyards. These three gave a lot of good advice for anyone wanting to expand their knowledge about wine, and specifically about Texas wine. They talked about how their companies support certifications and encourage developing additional wine knowledge through tasting the wines of the world and all around Texas. There's even a new Texas wine certification program in development, which may eventually be available to non-staff members. And if I may add one more suggestion, wineries should encourage their staff to listen to this podcast to stay up to date with the latest news in Texas wine. Find links to all these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. This podcast is sponsored by the Texas Wine Marketing Assistance Program, a program at the Texas Department of Agriculture that assists the Texas wine industry in promoting and marketing Texas wines and educating the public about the Texas wine industry. Commissioner Sid Miller and his team at the TDA are working to open new doors and new markets for the thriving Texas wine industry. Commissioner Miller said he's proud to be a sponsor of our podcast because we're telling the story of Texas wine. It's a story with a rich history that includes many inspiring Texans. Great wine starts in the vineyard, and Texas vineyards span across our great state. Every Texan should know that Texas not only grows grapes and makes wine, but Texas is the fifth largest wine-producing state. Texas is bigger than France, and like France, offers a wide range of growing environments, grape varieties, and wine styles. You can learn more about the TDA's Texas wine marketing efforts by visiting uncorktexaswines.com. 
My guest today is Benedict Rhine, who's celebrating her 20th year making wine in Texas. Benedict runs a successful wine consulting business and wine lab. And she's a founder and consulting winemaker at Coleman Cellars. But as you'll hear, her life in wine begins in Provence. Here's Benedict. Thank you for joining me, Benedict. I know this is your 20th anniversary of working in the Texas wine scene, um, which is fabulous. But your wine career actually started before you got to Texas. So can you take us back to where it all began in France? Yes. So I was born and raised in France. And um, as a young girl, I was exposed to our beautiful culture um, and uh, had a chance to also um, go to, to vineyards. And I have great memories of that. So went to a school uh, with biology and biochemistry degree, started with that, and then uh, was kind of interested into getting into the the. Uh, winemaking, it kind of encompassed all my passions, which is food and wine and celebrations and traveling. So uh, I actually uh, graduated in 1987. So uh, I can officially say I'm a, a, a veteran. I have 35 years of winemaking under my belt. Um, and upon graduating uh, at the University of Dijon in France, I um, immediately fulfilled one of my passion of traveling. So was able to, to do that as an intern um, in many countries. So New Zealand uh, was one of them and then uh, visited Australia and then come, came back to uh, Europe and worked actually in England for a couple of years uh, selling uh, beautiful French wine. This was an important step in my career. I was able to taste uh, at a young age um, wines from all over the world and beautiful wines through that working for that importer. Uh, but then my passion of touching grapes and making wines uh, really was, you know, I was missing it a lot. So I went back and and decided to explore the, another new world wine country, um, which is United States, uh, but ended up in California. Uh, Ravenswood Winery at the time in 1991 invited me to join the winemaking team. And I was with them uh, for 10 years, so 91 to 2001. And then in 2002, uh, my husband and I decided to come to Texas um, another pioneer uh, experience uh, for me, for sure. So um, we love being there. So now 20 years, I can't believe it. Thank you for pointing that out, reminding me, yes, we have been in Texas for 20 years. Yeah. I understand that when you first came into the Hill Country, that something about it reminded you of your home in Provence. Yes. So this was uh, on one of our trips in 2001. So uh, the week of 9-11, we were actually in Texas with our uh, two, two young kids at the time, uh, traveling in the minivan. <laughs> and uh, as we uh, drove around Fredericksburg, so the hill country, I was reminding my husband, wow, this, there's a lot of uh, the topography, the, the, the soil profile. 
uh, everything around, of course, except, you know, the buildings look different, but uh, reminded me of Provence, even the noises, you know, some cicadas or, uh, you know, I could, could hear it. So I know that you like to approach winemaking with an old world perspective. What does that mean to you? Oh, absolutely. So growing up in Europe, the focus is really on the terroir and where the, the grapes come from. But there is also this uh, desire to uh, produce, you know, the best possible wine um, with what you have. And this is where the art of blending, which I like, I like to talk about. Um, I discovered all this when I was tasting all those wines in England that really kind of crafted um, my winemaking style uh, based on creating wine that have balance. And so uh, it's making blends really allows you to, to do that in the, in the most um, respective way. So uh, I would rather use blending of different varietals to achieve balance in the wine that manipulating it with enology uh, product. And of course, having been uh, working in new world wine, um, you know, that's usually the approach. You can fix everything with a tool. Um, I more, maybe you would want to say traditional or, you know, old style wine where now I'm going to respect the earth. I'm going to respect this product that is given to me uh, and nurture it to to balance and so I can offer it to, to people. It's such an interesting balance because I know that you have a very sophisticated lab in your home office, I guess you would say, and you help uh, smaller wineries that don't have all of their own facilities understand what's happening with the samples that you run and so forth. Can you talk about the services that you offer as a consulting winemaker? Because everything you've said seems like, you know, art and um, that maybe you would rely less on science. But in fact, I know from researching your career that you have a very strong uh, scientific focus as well. Yeah, so that was actually one of the uh, one of the, the things that I noticed when we visited uh, Texas in 2001 is a lot of wineries did not really have a, uh, a quality control program or a very limited uh, lab. Um, and as was like, wow, this is something where we can really help the industry. So that was one of the first focus uh, when we moved to Texas is to create a, uh, a wine lab. And so it's we live on we live about 10 miles out of Fredericksburg on um, 22 acres. And we I basically remodeled our the garage, the two car garage into a lab. Um, and so this was in 2002. Uh, and and this was a, a, a very important tool to support my consulting business. So uh, when we created wine cons- country consulting, um, you know, definitely something that I would really um tell small wineries, you know, you're not, you, you, you're starting a winery. It's great. You can, you, you, you're going to be wearing so many hats. If the, if, if this is not in your, in your blood or in your heart to, to do chemistry and do all those, I can do this for you. Just concentrate on the part that you feel comfortable with. And, and, uh, I'm happy to do that. So I still have customers that, uh, you know, use my lab from, the very beginning. So, wow. um, you know, 
for the past 20 years. You know, I think my oldest customer is probably from 2003 and still sending me samples for analysis, which is awesome. So the Hill Country has changed so much and Fredericksburg and Gillespie County has grown so much in the 20 years since you started there. Remind us what it was like 20 years ago. And how, there were very few wineries, I, I imagine. And um, what was this, the wine scene like there then? Yeah, you're right. It was uh, 290 was a very different uh a different scene, uh, very few wineries that are still standing. Some of them are still standing. Some of them are, are not. Um, and yes, it's just has, uh, increased, you know, 10 to 20 to 50 fold, you know? So, uh, there was only a few, few little wineries. And, uh, when we were actually looking at where to live in Texas, um, there, there is also wineries from, different, just not only the hill country, the Gulf Coast, uh, North Texas, of course, West West Texas have some wineries. And this is such a huge state. Uh, Texas is such a huge state. Um, it's it's amazing. It's bigger than France. So imagine all the different terroir we haven't even tapped into uh, in this in this state. Uh, Texas reminds me a little bit of France, you know, in, in many ways. People are very proud of their heritage, and, um, you know, French people are very fascinated by Texas. It's the le pays des cowboys, the land of the cowboys. And French people love that. And the pioneers, that, that spirit is, you find it in every. So I would say probably in the wine scene, I'm, I'm the only non-Texas. I'm still French. I still haven't also gotten the American nationality. Uh, but I, after living for 20 years here, there maybe is a little bit of uh, Texas that's rubbing on me for sure. I bet so. <laughs> yeah. So help me understand how uh, having the lab that you have can help wineries. I'm thinking of, is it time to pick? But that I know that's a fairly straightforward decision. Um, but what kinds of analysis do you run and what problems can you help solve for, for smaller wineries? So... Winemaking is a, is a blend of science. You really need that science. It's everything in the winemaking, especially during fermentation, is a cascade of, of different reactions. You know, it's the fermentation is a chemi- chemistry reaction. Um, so a lot of things can go wrong. So having a great quality control implementation during every step is, is very crucial. You also, you know, if, you, if you're going to be doing winemaking without the science, you may be creating uh, some beautiful wines that have a lot of character, but it's, uh, you may produce a fantastic one one year and the following year it could be a disaster. Uh, when you have both of those in place, the science really helps you uh, keep your quality control. So from harvest making decision, you can... You, you definitely want to use the, the tools of knowing how much sugar you have in your grapes and how much acidity you have in your grapes. Of course, you're going to be looking at the color if you're making a red wine and you are also going to be tasting. So your sensory is going to be an important part. Uh, but you also need you also need to know what kind of sugar and what kind of acidity you're dealing you you're entering your grapes with. And then through the process of fermentation, um, you're monitoring this like a 
very closely as a babysitter. Like you need to be really close to your wines from when they're going through that very critical transition from juice to wine. Uh, and then at the end of fermentation, you need to know what, you know, you need to definitely do an analysis and find out what kind of alcohol you have in this wine. Is your acidity still in balance, especially with challenging grapes from the high plains? Uh, that could be a challenge. And then um, do you need to correct that? Um, and then, you know, do you have any sugar left? Do you have any mal malic, -like, malic acid left? Um, what is your SO2 levels? Uh, all those analysis are pretty important. And then through the aging of wine, you should be really checking your wine every month. Um, so um, to see how they are um, evolving, if there is any microbial issue that um, could be pointing their nose, you're not going to, you know, you'll be better off to know ahead of time if a problem is going to arise than after it happened and having to do corrections. So... Um, I would say as winemaker was a little bit like babysitters <laughs> um, and, and, and having those implemented uh, quality control uh, is important. And that's from the scientific background. I think in every, any industry uh, you would have that. Um, and so that's what I would recommend to every little wineries. And if you don't have the, uh, the capability of this is not in you to, to run the lab, you know, just source it out, you know, so mm -hmm. other people can do it. Definitely. I can do it in my lab. Yeah. I would love to get your thoughts on aging Texas wine and can, can scientific analysis tell you which wines will age? And since you have 20 years of history, how do you feel uh, Texas wine ages? Uh, that's a great question. Um, so the industry, I would say is 20 years old. So we're still, you know, I, I have had a chance to taste some older wines um, thanks to one of my friends, Bobby Cox, who has some of his early Pheasant Ridge um, uh, wine that he made in the early 80s that are fabulous. Um, and so I'm still discovering some of the wines also here that are, um, you know, that are aging, that surprise me. Um, you know, wines that I've made 10 years ago. or But there are also wines that do not age that well. I think in the red, with the reds, my philosophy on the reds is we need to be patient. We have very young vineyards, uh, especially with varieties like Grenache and Carignan and Sangiovese. Uh, the vines need to, to get a little older, you know, uh, Zinfandel, you know, working at Ravenswood really taught me old vines Zinfandels make better wine than new vines Zinfandel. I would say Carignan and Grenache are the same. Uh, old Carignan from France or Spain, beautiful. Uh, we're still young. Our vineyards were planted with, you know, most of our vineyards were planted in the past 10 years. We're a little young. So on those varietals, um, yes, needs, uh, we need to be patient. And I think the best wines of Texas uh, in reds have not been made yet. They're we're getting there. We're getting there. Uh, Jason Santani was my guest on the podcast that came out yesterday. And he said almost that exact same quote that we haven't made our best wines yet. Yes. And so I, of course, I'm, I'm older than Jason. <laughs> I'm getting there, but uh, I'm, I'm hoping, you know, the, the next generation is actually going to reap those benefits. You can still make some beautiful wines. 
the blending, I think, is that's where I think what you may be able to achieve, you know, um, you know, like I said earlier, balance. If we have a balanced wine, uh, I think it, how it will, we're just giving it a better potential to age, um, for sure. Well, as a consulting winemaker, you've made wine at the largest Texas winery and then also at some small boutique Texas wineries, including Coleman, where you're consulting winemaker. I'd love to get your thoughts on the differences in winemaking other than just pure scale. For people who might not know that uh, Mesa Vineyards out in West Texas, Fort Stockton area, is the largest um, winery in Texas. And they make a lot of wines that are... um, I would say on the value side of the equation. And I, I just wonder, I want to get your thoughts on the difference in approach in making a value wine versus more of a boutique wine. And there's so many opinions about is, is more expensive wine worth it or not, but I'd love to know your thoughts. Yes, that's a, uh, that's a great question. Um, so Yes, Mesa Vineyard, 1.6 million gallon facility um, that I was the winemaker there for 16 years uh, from 2003 to 2019. Uh, The goal there was to really um, produce consistency of a really uh, inexpensive wine. So uh, this is where the quality assurance, quality control, quality assurance really played a role and cost. So you um, make a wine that is going to please to the masses. <laughs> so um, not so much crafting, not so much art goes into it. It's just making sure the product is has no defect. The product is consistent year to year uh, to um to the to the style so and it's mostly mainly varietals wines over there so chardonnay cabernet sauvignon merlot uh, white zinfandel blush muscat you know those variety that people uh, it's going to end up on the shelf uh at heb or or all those the the big big channel of distribution and people are going to come back to that wine it's a very economical price it's your everyday wine i would say it's like in france uh, going to your calf co-op and, and buying, uh, you know, a, a bottle of wine for one or two euros. It's your everyday wine and you want that consistent quality. Um, use diff- different, very different part of my brains when I was at Miss Avenue. When I come back to Coleman, for example, it was a, 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 a smaller boutique winery. This is where you really... Uh, Pay attention to the, the vineyard selection, the terroir, the blending is very important, the aging of the wines, and where you are basically mixing science and art. And so when people ask me, is, is why making a science on an art? I like to respond, it's both. Um, you really need both of those qualities to make some uh, very interesting wine. And um, when you are in the boutique winery, you have the financials, first of all, because you can charge a lot more money for, for wines. Um, you have the time and you have, um, you know, when you, you can also use those part of your brain or those special talents that, um, 
I discovered at later age that I, I had. Not everybody has that talent. This talent. Once you have it, and you realize you're able to create something very special, uh, it's it's so rewarding to to be able to present that to customer and put a smile on their face and realize um, that they appreciate what you've done. That's nice. And do you attribute that the skills came from from tasting wines of the world and then? Um, what what is it about a wine that makes you think that it's just worthy of, um, you know, uh, it's ageable and beautiful? Yes, when it's so number one balance, you don't have anything taking more uh, of the other one. For me, anything that overpowers a wine is a defect. Uh, for me, it's like a. I like to describe it because I'm French. I'm going to use the French uh, one. It's a, like a 14th of July in your mouth. So when you go, so I guess for for United States, it would be a 4th of July. You go see fireworks and you are looking at those beautiful things. There's many colors. There's many designs. But as a whole, everything is contributing to this uh, magic. And um, when you are able to smell a wine and it connects your brain to all those beautiful aromatics. It's a very personal experience. Um, and then you, you put it in your mouth and it's, it's even more, you know, everything expected from the nose even more and it's balanced and it coats your mouth and you're able to pair that with a beautiful uh, food uh, and share that with your friends. That's and create memories. That's for me, That's lovely. the best wines. Yeah. One thing that I know about Texas wine, and I'm no winemaker, but I think this is not, not a secret to anyone, is that um, Texas grapes can, can be challenged when it comes to keeping their natural acidity. And so as a winemaker, how do you balance um, the acidification process if, if a wine needs to be acidified um, to where it's it feels like a like it's an imbalance versus an over-acidified wine that may give off the wrong kind of fireworks in your mouth. Exactly. Well, yeah, I agree with you. This is one of the challenges of Texas. I am a little more um, gentle on the acidification. I I have to tell you, I just dislike very much when I taste the wine, and I can tell it's been acidified way too much. And, and like I mentioned earlier, anything that's overpowering is a defect. So in my opinion, it's a defective wine that just got over acidified. It's just not right. First, not do not add acidity based on the recipe. Like I uh, must have a pH of this. Uh, give times to the wine. And if you have your quality control implemented, it, I know it can be scary when you have higher pH, do fermentation. If you get have good implementation during fermentation of quality control and watch it, then just add in increments little bit by little bit. It's amazing how the, the chemistry of winemaking changes through fermentation from grapes. There's a lot that can happen. Um, and so I tend to be a little more conservative in my additions and um, and do it in increments. It's a little more work. I don't do it by necessarily all the time by the numbers, although I look at the numbers. 
I taste and um, the balance in my mouth is directing my decisions. I have bottled some wine that had probably, if you were looking at the numbers where you would say, whoa, this is a little bit high, but it's in balance. The alcohol is in balance. The acidity, everything is in balance. So it doesn't matter what the number is, you know, you, and you make sure you protect your, your wine all the way. Um, of course, as you know, um, sweetness, which is not necessarily uh, dry sugar additions, sweetness can come from alcohol. So you can, you know, this is how you achieve your balances. Your the glycerol in the wine the, um, can be, you know, helping with that too. There are a lot of different levers to mm -hmm. have just right. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling that you have a passion for education and I've observed that based on different programs that, that you've offered for the public and your winemaking course and some of the consumer education things that you do at, at Coleman that I've seen. Yes. Thank you for asking. Yeah. That's a huge passion of mine. Um, when you, well, because you, you, I have the passion of wines I am called to share that with people, and I love that. Um, love to educate young winemakers um, so they can reach those those this passion, feel like they have this in their guts, and they they want to to share it. This is you know when you make wine, you're sharing. You this is a sharing passion for sure because eventually your wines are going to be drunk. Uh, the wine you make are going to be drunk. So I. Um, I, I actually created a, an education program also for, for the public that I, I haven't launched yet. Um, I think COVID kind of um, stopped me from doing that because it was, uh, it's a, a, my goal was to just bring people behind the scene of winemaking. So uh, from, I called it the, the educational journey. So bringing people on a journey with me um, kind of wanted to use, you know, the voyage to the center of terroir and the odyssey of the yeast, uh, uh, a discovery of the map of your senses. So it's uh, designed to um, bring the, the public not so they don't have to just go to sit in a, in a university bench to learn a little bit about winemaking, but getting into a little more depth of understanding what our job really is. And it really starts in the vineyard and it ends up in the bottle, you know, with a wine pairing or with food pairing. So each step, whether it's in the vineyard to, to the, the cellar, to the lab, which is important, uh, quality control into the actual sensory tasting of the wines. I develop like, um, little mini courses, day, day courses, um, that, um, only for a limited amount of people, maximum six people. So it's really hands-on where you go through the explanation of what we do things and then in the afternoon actually do the things. So, for example, in the vineyard, what's the story? Where where do the grapes come from? Uh, historically, from a very, very long time, that's probably one of the earliest plants um, that we can find fossils. Um, and then... Um, all the way to growing the grapes, pruning the grapes, harvest, all that stuff. And then, so going through that educational thing, a little more than just saying, here's the grape, you know, 
and this is where we're getting our grapes from. And then actually going in the vineyard and touching the vines and wherever the season may be, whether it's pruning or harvesting or watching the little, you know, uh, buds coming out in March and, and doing a count to see, you know, so um, I wanted to integrate that into a package. So it's called educational journey. Uh, I'm going to try to relaunch it this year. I hope yeah. we can do that. And, uh, um, and we can do it. And I will be doing that on the weekend. I like it. And I, I saw that on your, your website, benedictrhine.com, I believe. And I've, I've been debating how to continue my wine education. And if I wanted to continue with the, the WSET diploma program, but what I've, what I feel right now is that I'm not interested in spending hours memorizing maps, but I am interested in doing some more hands-on kind of education. So I'm excited to see when you launch that program because that sounds right up my alley. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, that's going to really make me so happy to be able to do that. Last year, when the Texas Hill Country Winery Symposium was online, you were speaking in one of the programs, and I, I jotted down a quote that you said, which is um, completely, you've already spoken to this, but you said, winemaking by the numbers has never worked for me. It's all about the balance. And then you went on to talk about some particular areas of Texas that you felt had exceptional terroir. Um, and I know we're still in the, the early stages of discovering what places in Texas are special, but I'd love to hear from you what areas you're really interested in and what is it about them that, that is so um, wonderful, if you can even identify that. And, and, and specifically, I wonder about soil type, because I read that you're very interested in limestone soils. I am. I think the hill country is probably, and the hill country uh, is pretty big, you know, when you go all the way, I guess, to, uh, Lano, uh, and, you know, there's so many micro terroir that are available to us that we just need to discover. Um, and of course we're the pioneers, we don't know, but limestone, um, you know, is a very, uh, important to me quality wise. You looked at all over Europe and the map of geological map of Europe. Um, there's a lot of limestone and uh, where some actually incredible um, vineyards and um, produce marvelous wines, uh, whether it's in Italy or, or Spain or France um, or Germany. Um, amazing. So we're not reinventing the wheel, but yeah, we do need to, to, to look, to look at those still. I can't wait to see what the next 20 years is going to bring here and, um, how are we going to find those terroir? And, you know, there are already some little gems that are popping up, you know, like I mentioned at the, the Hill Country Symposium last year. Um, so there's more to come for sure. What are you most excited about in the next 20 years of Texas wine? Oh, just to see, uh, like I said, to see the uh, amazing wines being made, the recognition on the international scene, young winemakers you know I, I start I see them already young women young uh, gentlemen including my son who are becoming passionate about this and 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 so and bring the Texas industry to 
you know, to where it needs to be, which is recognized on the international scene and, and all those growers, uh, you know, producing beautiful grapes and the wineries able to deliver on their wines. So is your son following in your footsteps? Oh, yes. There's, you know, this is awesome as a parent when you see your one of your child, you know, developing the same passion. So um, it's, you know, of course, when he told me, I started crying. It's like, you know, it's, it's, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's uh, emotional. And, my, you know, my husband is a musician. So when he sees our children being, you know, playing music, I'm sure he feels that same thing. It's awesome to, to see that and, um, you know, to, to see that passion being transferred uh, to the next generation is awesome. So, yeah, very excited about that. Yeah. What's it like to be a winemaker in, in the Hill Country and in Fredericksburg? Um, is it difficult to build the relationships and is it a pretty collegial group? Uh, yes, I would say we, we, we help each other. I mean, it's, it's nice to see your, your uh, colleague down the road that are successful and, and then doing great things and, and innovations and stuff. And, and we help each other. I mean, the last past two years have been challenging for the industry in many ways, uh, not only with COVID, but also with um, the high plains, you know, freeze and, and devastation. So helping each other, you know, sourcing grapes and, and helping each other when the press break down or, or the pumps break down, uh, that is still, you know, there, there is that definitely, uh, energy there, which is awesome. Um, so yeah, this is, you know, a lot of, uh, California suppliers says, wow, this, you guys are still having, you know, California has become so competitive. Um, they kind of enjoy coming to Texas and seeing that, uh, incredible friendship and helpful, um, you know, energy between us, um, that maybe they may have lost in California. So when you came to Texas, you realized that there wasn't the kind of lab that, that Texas wine could use. I'm guessing that there are still gaps in the services around Texas wine. Is there anything that, that you think, why hasn't somebody just already created X, Y, or Z for Texas wine? That would help our industry so much. I, I think um, it's it, it, what we yeah. are. I, I, it's a great question. I think a multiple facet, I think finding uh, qualified labor in the, in both the vineyards and the, the winery and the tasting room um, has been a challenge. So go back to education or um, yeah, the education, you know, any really University, I'm not really sure. I'm surprised there is no more schools, you know, even though we do have programs. But um, I would say this is an area that needs improvement for sure, in my opinion. I think some kids in high school that have never heard about a career as a, a potential winemaker, you know, you just have the traditional, you know, being a doctor, a physician, a pharmacist, or a lawyer. And it's, you know, they don't even know this is a a potential opening for the career, um, you know, until much later, you know, and then where do they go to, to study this? Um, so, mm -hmm. uh, even if it's just a college, you know, a college, uh, offer, you know, 
Like my son, he's he's going to Washington State to do this. He's not going to be doing this in Texas. So, um, you know, something to look and invest and, and research, research too. Well, he can get some experience there, but then he should really bring it back home to Texas. Oh, I hope so. Well, he can, he's young. He can travel to a little bit and have fun. And that's true. But yes, he, he needs to come. go see the world and then bring it back, bring all that good knowledge back to Texas. Yes. Um, I have to ask you one final question because I know that you love champagne. So I would love for you to, to give us a couple of recommendations of uh, some of your favorite champagne. Yes. So ironically enough, uh, that's my favorite drink. Um, I uh, love it because it goes with so many things. You, know, you can have it just as a glass on its own, or you can have it um, with any kind of food, dessert, anything. It goes with everything. Um, I remember visiting Champagne, going to a restaurant with one of my friends, and uh, we had Champagnes for the whole meal. Never had a red bottle of wine. Um, love it. Uh, and, yes, there are some beautiful Métat Champenoise wine. Um, I, my favorite has always been a Rudderer. Is, believe it or not, it's not from France. It's from... Uh, Mendocino, Anderson Valley, um, Rudderer Estate, um, their brute is, is always my favorite. That's what I drink when I can, when I can. Um, my grandfather was, uh, love, he loved champagne too. And this is, I think every time I, I drink a glass, I think of him because he, um, I'm wondering if this is why I love champagne so much at my christening, he actually dipped a Jordan almond into his glass of champagne and had me suck, suck on it as a, as a two months old. So I have to thank him for that. <laughs> Thanks Benedict. And keep us posted on when you're offering your four day winemaking course. Although I think I should warn you that I probably shouldn't be trusted in a lab. Find out what Benedict has going on by following her website, benedictrine.com. And now it's time for a few Texas wine gold stars and a demerit. A gold star to a fun new sign that will be erected somewhere in the Texas Hill Country. It's an idea similar to Napa Valley's famous sign, perfect for Instagram photo ops and a bucket list destination for any wine trip to the Hill Country. No word yet on where the sign will be located or what it might say. News of the sign broke at a state of the industry talk at the recent Hill Country Winery Symposium. The state of the industry talk was given by outgoing president John Rivenberg of Kerrville Hills Winery and Philip Hawkins of Grape Creek Winery. He's the incoming president of the association. Kudos to both of you for your service. So what do you think the Hill Country wine sign should say? Napa says, welcome to this world famous wine growing region, Napa Valley. And the wine is bottled poetry. Of course, that last part is a famous Robert Louis Stevenson quote. I hope someone clever with some good design sense is responsible for the sign. Otherwise, this could go really wrong. But for now, let's call it a gold star. And this is more of a bummer than a demerit, but two Austin wine bars that carry Texas wine have closed. 
Wine Belly, and Texas Reds and Whites are the wine bars I'm talking about. The pandemic has decimated U.S. restaurants and apparently wine bars too. Fortune magazine estimates that 90,000 restaurants have shut down and almost 6 million workers have lost their job during this time. Don't forget to support the businesses that you want to succeed, especially those pouring Texas wine. Quick note, I love the reviews you guys leave on Apple Podcasts and the like. Thanks, Scott C., for saying, It didn't take long to feel like I had massively leveled up my knowledge of what's going on in the industry. And thanks to Michelle and the crew at Triple N Ranch Winery who listen as well. Your reviews help new listeners find the podcast. And thanks to all the listeners who visit the website and buy me virtual Texas wine. Your support means I can do things like pay the bills for the podcast hosting service. And pay my hotel bill at Horseshoe Bay. Podcasts are always free to listen to, but not free to produce. If you're inclined to support this podcast, you can do that by visiting thisistexaswine.com and clicking on the Support the Podcast tab. As you know, this podcast runs on Texas Wine. Thanks, y'all. Get in touch. Email me at texaswinepod at gmail.com. And I'm at texaswinepod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And thanks to Texas Wine Lover website and Jeff Cope for helping promote the podcast. Visit TXWineLover.com to help you plan your next winery visit. Join me in two weeks for my next episode. And thanks for listening to This is Texas Wine. Cheers, y'all.